Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. Each and every week, a guest and I uh, unpack the weekly Torah portion, the weekly reading from the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, the Torah, that is shared within Jewish communities throughout the world. This week, there are in fact two Torah portions that are being read a special one in honor of uh, the upcoming holiday of Passover. So let me speak to that first, because it will not be the Torah portion that my guest and I will speak about. Following the holiday of Purim, preparations for Passover begin in earnest. On the home front, Jews try and clean their house to make them chumitz-free, and to get rid of what is called chumetz. In the synagogue front, the Torah readings are supplemented by two special pre-Passover readings. On this Shabbat that falls on or before the first of Nisan, the month of Passover, we read a special hachodesh reading referring, HaChodesh, referring to Nisan as the month of Passover. And this week, before that, we read the Parah reading. The Torah reading of Parah comes from Numbers 19 and details the laws of the red heifer and the process by which a person, usually a priest, rendered ritually impure by contact with a dead body was purified. When the Holy Temple stood in Jerusalem, every Jew had to be in a state of ritual purity and time for the bringing of the Passover offering in the temple. Today, with the temple not being uh, around, um, traditional Jews are unable to fulfill the temple-related rituals and practice, so usually they are filled spiritually by studying their laws in the Torah. The special parah haftarah from Ezekiel 36 discusses God's promise to purify and cleanse the Jews when he regathers them and they return all to the land of Israel during the Messianic era. The hachodesh parashah from Exodus 12 verses 1 through 20 recounts God's historic communication to Moses in Egypt on the 1st of Nisan, two weeks before the Exodus, of course, two weeks before Passover, regarding the establishment of a Jewish lunar solar calendar, the Paschal offering, matzah, bitter herbs, and the Seder. So all of that would take place in the traditional synagogue this Shabbat, but in addition, in all synagogues, regardless of their uh, perspective and understanding of Jewish tradition, would be reading from Leviticus 9 through Leviticus 11, and that Torah portion is known as Shmini. That's Hebrew for the eighth, for on the eighth day, the Torah portion tells us, following seven days of their inauguration, or confirmation, or installation, 
Aaron and his sons begin to officiate as Kohanim, priests. A fire issues forth from God to consume the offerings on the altar, and the divine presence comes to dwell in the sanctuary. The narrative concerning the laws of the sanctuary is interrupted by a very unusual and troublesome narrative section. The Torah tells us that Aaron's two elder sons, Nadav and Avihu, offer what is called a strange fire before God, which he commanded them not, and they die before God. Aaron is silent in the face of his tragedy. Moses and Aaron subsequently disagree as to a point of law regarding these offerings, but Moses concedes to Aaron that Aaron is the right. This narrative interruption then returns us back to the laws. God commands the laws of kashrut, identifying the animal species permissible and forbidden for consumption. Land animals may be eaten only if they have split hooves and also chew their cud. Fish must have fins and scales. A list of non-kosher birds is given, and a list of kosher insects are described. Finally, Shmini offers some of the laws of ritual purity, including the purifying power of the mikvah, a pool of water that meets specified qualifications, and the wellspring. Thus, the people of Israel are enjoined, as the Torah portion continues, to differentiate between the pure and the impure. My guest this morning is Rabbi Sai Stanway of Temple Beth Miriam in Elberon, New Jersey. Rabbi Stanway has been at Temple Beth Miriam for nearly 25 years. He served congregations in New Mexico and elsewhere and is a uh, rabbi who believes in reaching out to serve the people. He will shortly be joining another group of rabbis to visit the Ukraine and offer spiritual uh, sustenance to those who have fled the fighting and tragedy and horrors of the Ukraine and meeting them in Poland. Rabbi Stanway, welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. Thank you very much. It's wonderful to be here again. Well, it is a pleasure to chat with you again. And we have a challenging Torah portion to deal with. And you and, and you and I decided that rather than begin with discussing the sacrifices, of which the th- previous three Torah portions um, focused on, we're going to focus on this episode of Nadav and Avihu. And so perhaps you can remind the listeners of what this episode is all about. I would be happy to. So in Leviticus 10 comes this extraordinarily strange story. And the first time anybody reads this story, they shake their head and they go, what just happened? Now, it says in Leviticus 10 that uh, Aaron, Aaron has two sons, or Aaron has several sons, but Two of his sons, Nadav and Abihu, take what's called a fire pan. I don't know, some kind of a pan upon which incense uh, might be burned. And it says that they put a fire in it. At this point, it's interesting because it's not the 
uh, Eshzara. It's not the strange fire, just a, a regular fire. And then they approach God to make this offering, which the, God did not command. And the text says a fire came forth from God and consumed them, and they died. And that was that, that's that is the entire story. And then God says something really cryptic after that, and uh, the text says something like, um, uh, uh, through those who are close to me, I show myself holy, and I gain glory before all the people, which intimates that what Nadav and Abihu did was not a holy thing. And so the rabbis, of course, are really confused about what in the world is going on in this Torah portion. Because not only uh, d- do we not have a definition of a strange fire, uh, we don't know what, uh, what, what, what was going through Aaron's mind at the very end of this story, which is what I think a total of four verses, uh, where yes. it says, V'yidom aharon, and Aaron was silent. Aaron has no reaction. We don't know what he's thinking or feeling, um, and he immediately gives instructions to uh, to a couple of his, uh, 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 well, to to, to Mishael um, and Elzaphan, who were uh, the sons of um, Uziel, uh, who was the uncle of Aaron. Um, and and it's interesting because as we get to the Haftarah, which is the prophetic portion of this Torah portion, we're going to see something really, really cool. So let's take a step back for a moment. This has been sure. a, a troubling Torah portion. Um, what appears on the surface is that Aaron's sons, Nadav and Avihu, have experienced seven days of consecration, perhaps ordination as priests, now are part of the priestly uh, sacrificial cult. They seem to be excited, and they are, uh, in their excitement, they offer what the text often seems to call unauthorized fire, um, fire that has not been prescribed by the biblical text, and they are uh, physically eliminated as chastisement. Why do you think the Torah um, sees this unauthorized fire as so challenging to God's hegemony? Now, that is, of course, the question. Uh, And and, uh, um, in reading the commentaries and in reading the story and in thinking about it, um, I have come up with an answer um, that echoes Aaron's. The Yidoma Haron and Aaron was silent, and I am silent as well because I don't think there is a an answer that um, um, that 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 we can uh, um, that that we can really come to. There's no final answer um, that that uh, that will give us satisfaction. What the rabbis try to do is they try to give explanations about, you know, what what did Aaron's sons do wrong? And from our point of view, 
um, Aaron's sons didn't really do anything wrong. They were just enthusiastic. Enthusiastic uh, is a Greek word from entheos, which means God is within. They were they were on fire for God, um, but uh, God turned that into a more literal um, uh, meaning. Would, and, would we think that this is would Nadam and Abihu be um, considered charismatic? In the way you that know, we use the word today, well, yeah, um, uh, th th they certainly were. Um, but it, but what what is interesting is that in 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 their excitement, uh, they crossed boundaries, and th it, it's almost the text saying, "If you think you know what God is and what God wants." Um, this text is saying you don't, and you're never going to figure out the mind of the divine, which is, of course, uh, what the uh, uh, Jewish mystics um, would, 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 would say as well. And when you look at this today, especially down here in the United States, you have people who think they speak for God, and they are, uh, um, th they are telling you what God is and what God wants and the kind of people that God loves. And this text is coming to say, you don't know anything about the mind of God. And the covenant that Jews have is that here is what we are supposed to do. Here are the kinds of lives we are supposed to lead. Here are the kinds of food we are supposed to eat. But if you think that that gives you insight into God's mind completely, you're wrong. And I think that what happened is that Nadav and Abihu got so excited that they knew what God wanted, and wouldn't God appreciate that, uh, they were wrong, and they paid for it with their lives. Um, and trying to figure out um, the mind of somebody else, especially a deity, uh, is is an impossibility because we'll never really get into their mind. This was not a, a a sacrifice that God wanted. God has already laid out the sacrifices that 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 uh, that, that God wanted. You know, it's um, it's such a challenging and um, dense set of verses um, because it sits in the middle of a description, a litany of laws, it has the potential to lead us to believe that God intended for the Israelites to simply follow God's laws and to not deviate from the laws as a path to uh, the divine. But I'm not sure that that's really the correct reading, that the laws um, supersede human free will, um, which is one reading of it. Because, um, as you said, Aaron's response is vayidom, silence. So, for a moment, let's ask ourselves, is Aaron silent because he's lost two sons? Is he silent because he's angry with God? 
Is he silent because having just emerged from this seven-day convocation of installation, he is overwhelmed with his uh, obligations as a priest? Um, how do we understand, how might we understand Aaron's silence? Well, you know, if we don't understand God's actions, and we cannot get into the mind of God, we certainly are not going to get into the mind of Aaron, who just found out that two of his sons have died. We don't know why he was silent. We don't know what the emotion was. But your first point is very well taken, Steve, because the... Um, uh, the philosopher Philo um, uh, actually commented that what Nadav and Abihu did was a good thing, and that they wanted to uh, they wanted to commune with God on such a level that their lives were unimportant to them. They wanted to shed their bodies, if you will, and that is why Nadav and Abihu are not cursed. Later on in 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 biblical text, they are uh, they, they are they are remembered for good, and Philo knows this. He's one of the, well, I think he's the only commentator who says that what they did was not a bad thing. And of course, today we look at the spiritual aspect of Jewish life, and there is a great need, a, a desire, a drive to connect with the holy, and we do that through a great many ways uh, that don't include sacrifices. Well, of course, sacrifices we can't do because there's no tabernacle anymore and there's no temple anymore. Consequently, we have to find other ways to worship and to, to sense the divine. And so, all of the rabbinic ideas um, and 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 modern ideas and medieval or nineteenth-century Hasidic ideas about connecting with God through music and dance and prayer and other forms of worship and study um, are the ways that we offer ourselves to God. But if we are going to look at the text itself and says, "This is the way you must worship God." None of us would be worshiping God. None of us would be worshiping at all because we're doing it in ways that are completely different than what the text has told us to do. Consequently, Judaism has had to evolve uh, in order to meet the spiritual needs. So in that way, you are right. Nadav and Abihu are in some measure um, the... Uh, the, the cutting edge of the wave, the shiny white edge of the wave that is showing us that spirituality is at, and enthusiasm is a positive thing. The problem with Nadav and Abihu is even though it might have been a positive thing on the surface, at that time and place, it wasn't a positive thing. And that's why when we try to understand what God's reaction was, we have to sit back like Aaron and be silent because we don't know. God doesn't tell us why he got angry. So Philo, of course, 
is um, not considered mainstream uh, Jewish commentary. Correct. But, um, and in fact, his um, approach to the deity, which today we would call pantheistic, led him to be excluded from the Jewish community. But in discussing the spirituality of the story, I'm reminded of something from the Hasidic world, um, that the Or HaChaim um, tells us that Aaron's sons did not sin literally. Their sin was allowing their desire to cleave to God to become so intense that their bodies could no longer contain their souls and they expired. Thus, when the Torah says they drew near to the God with such passion that they died. And this, according to Hasidic tradition, a more modern Hasidic tradition, not 18th century, this was considered a sin for although a Jew must divest himself of material concerns and focus on spirituality, at the moment when the ultimate ecstasy of the soul is within his grasp, he must return to the work that the soul is meant to do within a physical existence. We are sent, according to this Hasidic tradition, uh, to this world to impact and transform it and not to escape it. And so, as you said, that the spirituality of Nadav and Abihu may have been perceived by the um, um, story writer, the narrative writer, as suggesting that um, they should be beyond what God has requested. Um, as opposed to being of this world, they wanted to be out of this world. It's an interesting point. And uh, um, it, it's, uh, um, if, if we step back, um, anybody who's taught Torah um, comes across this issue all the time. For our students who want to study and learn and experience, um, you know, they, they, they're, they're doing this as part of a spiritual exercise. I think that's why people study. I think that's why they learn. <laughs> and yet, we, as, as teachers, we have to remind them that more than anything else, we need to keep our feet in two worlds at the same time. We need to keep we need to keep one foot in the spiritual and the holy, but the other in our own responsibilities and 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 our obligations uh, to our families and our work and and so forth. We can't always be in these moments of ecstasy. There's an interesting symbol that's used um, uh, I believe in the Sufi tradition, and that is of a moth, and the moth is the searcher, and and uh, a moth, as you know, uh, flickers around a flame, which is which is the symbol for God, and yet if the moth gets too close, what happens? Poof, the moth is incinerated, and the same kind of thing that this Hasidic tradition is teaching us is that we can't get too close and expect to uh, uh, to be um, uh, existing at the same time in our own regular day-to-day lives. So on and, the, and in the Peshat level, 
Nadav and Abihu, who have this responsibility as priests, um, push aside their obligations of this world for their personal uh, expectations of spiritual connectedness, and the Torah, and perhaps all of uh, religious tradition says that when you undertake uh, leadership responsibilities, um, they are preeminent. Um, even if you have to cede some of your personal in the uh, public domain, of which they did, right? Their bringing of uh, fire was not in private. That's a different issue. But, but publicly, they uh, rejected their obligation as uh, priests of the sacrificial cult. That's correct. And um, I'm glad that you mentioned that. Um, I, 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 I had uh, something of the same thought. And if we're going to apply it to today, um, you know, what is a leader? And this really goes to that question. And what is a religious leader? Does a religious leader, yeah, what does a religious leader do? Does a religious leader do for somebody? or do with somebody? Does a religious leader show us how to do things, or does a religious leader do it for us and enjoys the ecstasy and lets everybody watch? And that means that we have to give up part of who we are. In other words, we have to give up part of our ego um, in order to be effective leaders. And that is also, of course, a Hasidic idea, but there are other religious traditions that have much the same idea um, that in order to be effective, we need to serve, as leaders, we need to serve others. We are not there simply to serve ourselves. We're going to have to leave it there. My guest this morning has been Rabbi Cy Stanway of Temple Beth Miriam in Long Branch, New Jersey. He's helped us unpack this very, very confusing and powerful episode in Shmini. You can hear a uh, recording, a podcast of our show on the chri.ca website and on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast for Jewish faith and Jewish facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten saying shalom and have a good day.